Welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin. It's Black History Month, and we are celebrating Black History here at Before You Go on KBLA Talk 1580. We take a rewind in time. Bryant, what a delight in that we get to hear some of your conversation today with one of our most engaging and active leaders in the civil rights movement. Yes, for sure. So some years ago, I think it was back in 2004 or something like that. Mm. And I was getting my start in the business media. (laughs) And I had a chance to interview Dr. Joseph Lowry in Atlanta. Now, prior to meeting him, I had no idea he was uh, as phenomenal as he was until I was working a Tom Joyner Sky Show in Atlanta. And he spoke to the crowd. And I mean, he lit them up and fired them up. He's just a testimony of the civil rights movement in the first place, but also how active he was in making sure that younger generations engaged in the same mission. So I had a chance to approach him and I talked with him and I said, look, I'm doing some things for Alabama A&M at the time and I wanted to provide some content, some TV content for their TV station. So I wanted to highlight civil rights leaders that were still living and doing well. And he was the first one that I had a chance to speak with. Now, come to find out, he grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, where A&M is located. He got busy preaching at an early age. (laughs) But you'll love his stories. I mean, he is phenomenal. I think he was 81 or 82 at the time we did this interview. I can't wait to hear. He's such a compelling speaker, and I know you had some great questions. Let's listen in. What was life growing up in Huntsville? Briefly, what what you know? That's pretty hard to be brief. Brief, I know, because you got a lot of experience. <laughs> but, uh, well, Huntsville was, uh, as you know, at that time, uh, I remember when I went to school, the way to school, and they looked up Huntsville, and they found a population to be less than 10,000. Uh, it was a textile mill town uh, in the center of an agricultural, mostly cotton area, and uh, there were two mills, I believe, there, and... Uh, very little industry other than that, and a farming area. And uh, during the week, the town was fairly vacant. But on the weekends, when the farmers and their families came to town to shop, right. and Friday evening and Saturday became a bustling, hustling right. community. But a uh, relatively quiet town, A&M on the north and Oakwood on the west uh, provided the higher educational environment uh, of, uh, of Huntsville. And I had a very pleasant childhood. My daddy was a small businessman. Uh, he was uh, wanted to be a pharmacist and worked uh, uh, with a doctor, Dr. Scruggs. Scruggs. Yes, right. and uh, that's an old name in Huntsville. This man was years ago and, and uh, was going to go to Meharry instead of to be a pharmacist, mm-hmm. but uh, opened a little business, a little ice cream parlor with a pool table in it, okay. uh, to uh, save enough money to go to to college, pharmacy school, and ended up he worked there about 50 or 60 years. Okay. <laughs> Never did get <laughs> to, 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 to pharmacy school, and remained a businessman, but a but a relatively for a small town. Uh, African-American, a relatively successful businessman and provided us with with uh, mostly good times, although I remember the bad times. I remember the Depression in the 30s when uh, we were uh, 
uh, very, very careful what we ate and what we wasted and how we used. I remember uh, cutting out uh, from a piece of cardboard a sole for my shoe hmm. to wear to school. I remember uh, stepping in water and discovering that your feet that were wet <laughs> and that sole was not very protective. But, but I had a good father, good mother. Uh, neither of them went to school as long as they wanted to. My mother went long enough to teach at normal school and uh, uh, sang in the choir and everything else there was to be done in the church. My father didn't get interested and active in the church until later years. He finally became treasurer of the church, but that was after I had told him I was not going to law school. I wanted to preach. God had called me to preach. And uh, he was a little stunned at first, but finally uh, adopted and adapted uh, that idea. And I remember the first sermon I preached at Lakeside Church in Huntsville, which is now out near the A&M campus. Uh, uh, Lakeside Methodist, United Methodist, was on Jefferson Street then, which was the back of my house, which was on Church Street. And uh, if you read that, the historical mark on Jefferson where Lakeside Church once stood, which has my name on it for some strange reason. But at any rate, uh, uh, I used to go to that church every time it opened. And I had several pastors who told me that I would preach one day. And I told my mother, you know, all your pastors are a little off in the head because they keep saying I'm going to preach. preach I have no intentions of preaching. The Lord hadn't called me, and if I hear him, I'm going to pretend uh, I'm deaf. How old were you then? Oh, dude, this was during my formative years, uh, 10 through 14, down in there, 15. Uh, I used to hear them. I, I think the reason they said it because my mother made me learn so many speeches. That every time they had a program at church, I was on program for a speech. And I remember one incident where I didn't want to speak. And my mother made me speak anyhow. And I remember, I don't know what I was supposed to say, but I remember saying up to Hickory and down to Pine, I tore my britches right behind. And I turned, I turned my britches to the audience and, and said, I tore my britches right behind. And then I took off out the back door of the church with my mother in hot pursuit. And so it must have been from all those speeches and the preachers got the notion that I was going to preach one day. Okay. But I, I have very pleasant memories of Huntsville. Nothing very exciting, but uh, steady and quiet and and relatively comfortable, except for uh, intermittent periods of, of of hard times. I read something where you had an incident with a police officer that that was in the yes, sort of changed your your whole perspective. It, did, on it, it introduced me to the fact that there was a race problem. Right. Now, I was aware that there was a race problem, but not not uh, deeply. It, it didn't deeply impress my psyche. Uh, I was aware, but paid little attention because we had our own world. And I, I was aware of the fact that we walked by uh, uh, schools to get to the colored school. I was aware that white kids rode buses while, while we walked. I was aware there were places that I couldn't, couldn't go. But since we had uh, uh, enough places, I thought, 
it really didn't bother me until one day I was coming out of my father's little sweet shop and uh, I was two-thirds out the door a big six-foot-something police officer was one-third in and he punched me with his nightstick and said get back nigga don't you see a white man coming in the door and of course I got back he came in and with my eyes swelling with tears and my pride and everything else severely injured, I made it down Church Street to my house. I remember my father had a little pearl handle 32 pistol in the drawer of his, what we called a chiffre robe. And uh, I had not been introduced to the philosophy of nonviolence at the time. <laughs> I hadn't heard of it. And uh, got that little pistol and started out the door find this police officer who had bruised my belly and my pride. My father shocked me, met me on the porch. Now what was so shocking was, this was during the week, and my father never came home in the daytime except on Sunday. I never saw him in the daytime. He left home before the sun came up and got home after the sun had gone down. And so I, I, and to this day, I don't know what brought him home that particular afternoon, but thank God he came because he sensed something was wrong. Uh, I had my hand in my pocket. He made me take my hand out of my pocket, discovered the gun, uh, slapped me across the face, <laughs> carried me back in the house. What are you doing with this gun? And what is wrong with you? And I told him, tearfully what had happened. He sent me upstairs to my room. The next day he went to see the mayor. The mayor told him that, I'm sorry, Lee. Nothing I can do about it. He said, we don't pay much. Rednecks are the only police officers we can hire. Nothing I can do about it. Boy, he didn't hurt. Forget about it. My daddy came back and told me, but I vowed not to forget about it. And it left a deep impression on me. And I, I, I was aware that there was a problem that we had to deal with in terms of black and white relations. Right. You might also be interested to know that about two decades later, almost two decades later, I was pastoring a little church in Birmingham, on the outskirts of Birmingham. And I came home to see my parents. I was standing on the porch, and the postman came by. And he gave her the mail, and I looked at him, he looked at me. I noticed my mother appeared a little nervous. And when he walked away, I said, and she said, yes, hmm. it is. That's the fella who was the police officer who punched you in the belly. And I went down the steps to catch him. In the meantime, he had turned around and started back. And he said, aren't you Joe? And I said, aren't you so-and-so? And he said, yes. He said, I've been wanting to, to meet you. I heard you were preaching in Birmingham. I said, yes, I am. I didn't know you were a postman. He said, yes, and I'm preaching too. He said, I have a little church out here between uh, 
between Huntsville and Athens. Yeah. He has a pastor of the church. And we talked for a few minutes and, and uh, reconciled. I think both of us may have, have gotten watery-eyed over the thing, but uh, it was a very moving experience. And he acknowledged his wrong and asked my forgiveness in, in his own way. He didn't just come out and say that, but he told me he was preaching, he knew things had not like they should have been, and that uh, he had wanted me to turn over a leaf of new life. And and so we shook hands and parted. My mother uh, breathed a sigh of deep, <laughs> a deep sigh of relief, because she didn't know what was about to occur. Well, is that what you think fueled your desire to? you know, be as active as you were. As I, I think the incident, the first incident, uh, in the did uh, uh, put a seed in my mind, in my heart, about the need for for some changes to be made. If a police officer could abuse a young black boy with impunity, and the police chief tell my father there was nothing he could do about it. He, he wouldn't even agree to chastise or call him in and ask him about it. It was obvious to me even then that some changes were absolutely essential uh, in this in this place called Alabama and these United States. Is there any other incident that sticks out in your mind as the Well, there were the other incidents. Even, even before that, I was aware. I, my father had a, he was the most, uh, impressive man I ever met. He left an indelible, indelible mark on my life for the positive and for the good. He handled the race relations situation. He was driving a new car once and uh, the police officer stopped him. So racial profile <laughs> Again. Didn't, didn't start in modern time. No. He stopped him in his <coughs> car and, uh, and he said, whose car is this? And my daddy said, I was sitting with somebody, I said, this is Mr. Lee Lara's car. And the man said, oh, well, all right, go on, drive carefully. But my daddy was Mr. Lee Lara. <laughs> and that was his way of dealing with the race problem. I couldn't quite handle that technique, but that was even before the other incident. And all of that came back to me. And, and I just, before that incident, uh, it didn't occur to me we had to fight to change that situation. I just thought you had to be smarter than the cop. I just thought my daddy was so much smarter than the cop, but that would have settled that. And that was no need to change anything because black folks were smarter than white folks. <laughs> right. Uh, do you see, in terms of keeping the dream alive, well, keep it going. In 2003, going to 2004, what are some of the things that you're doing now to Well, what I'm doing now is what I've been trying to do for the last five years, that's retire. Retire? Yeah, retire. Okay. But nobody respects retire. my retirement. Okay. So when I retired, well, I retired from pastoring in 92. And then I kept SCLC as head of SCLC from 77 to January of 98, 21 years. And uh, I retired from there in 98. And after I retired <clears throat> uh, as president of SCLC, some local leaders came to me and said, hey, now that you're retired, uh, we'd like to, to try what we tried once before in 90. And that was to pull together a coalition, which we called the Black Agenda, uh, of all the organizations 
and present a united front in achieving racial justice. We did it in 90, but it didn't last long because all of us were busy and each of us headed some organization. So in 98, when I retired, they came and said, now that you don't head an organization, why don't you pull us together again and let's see if we can have this coalition to sort of coordinate our activities and, and do things together that we can address some things that no one organization has the time, uh, uh, can afford the, the, the emphasis that it needs, like political empowerment and the quality of governance. And so we agreed and I pulled them together and we changed the name to the People's Agenda rather than the Black Agenda. So I've been doing that for the past five years and we've worked primarily in improving the quality of governance, uh, but we've also worked in some economic areas because that's a critical issue for us. But we have the NACP, the SCLC, the Rainbow Push, we have all the organizations, the ministerial groups, women's groups, labor groups, and we meet weekly right here in the Atlanta Life Building. And we listen to each other and see where we can strengthen each other's programs. And then we have certain projects and interest points that we work on together. That's been voter registration, voter turnout, voter education, and that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm still uh, trying to retire, hopefully in 2004. I'm, I wanted to stick with the group through the November election of 2004. But in the meantime, I do want to spend more time with my family and trying to complete a book that I've hardly begun. Okay, for young people today, like let's say who go to A&M, who graduated historically black colleges, looking at viable involvements such as in your generation and my father and mother's generation, are there any other fronts that you see as a well, urgent the, need for yes. the younger people to be a part of? The same fronts that were there in 1957. I guess it has a different face now. Difference, 1957, yeah. are there in 2003 and 2004. And that's particularly in two areas. One is economic justice, and the other is the criminal justice system. Now, the reason we chose a political empowerment uh, and the quality of governance, because that is a channel, a tool we can use to achieve economic justice and to change the criminal justice system which is probably the least impacted by the civil rights movement and by social change in, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century. Uh, the criminal justice system of 2003 looked very much like the criminal justice system of 1903 and 1943 and 1933. Uh, so we are, we, we're, we're putting a lot of emphasis on that at Clark Atlanta University when I retired in uh, 98, uh, they uh, set about establishing the Lowry Institute for Justice and Human Rights, and they changed presidents, so we've been slow in, in getting off the ground, but we finally had our first project uh, a couple of months ago, and it was a symposium on criminal justice reform, and, and that's an area that we're deeply interested in because it's a new form of slavery. 
to keep all these black men and an increasing number of black women, young women, in prison. Many of them there on nonviolent crimes, mostly drugs, mandatory sentencing. Many of them there without any legal defense in violation of both state and federal constitutions. So our future is, is severely threatened and imperiled by a criminal justice system that has not experienced a change in other places. And so when you look at that and the economic system, uh, when we started SCLC in 1957, the median income of African Americans was about 57, 58% of the median income of white Americans. Today, 46, 47 years later, it's only up to a little better than 60%. So young people today at all the black colleges need to be prepared, and all the other colleges for that matter, wherever they matriculate, need to be thoroughly interested and completely saturated by the need and the challenges of the criminal justice system and economic justice. Our median income today, as I said, has only improved four or five percent in 50, almost 50 years. So at that rate, it'll take us another century <laughs> to, to reach parity and equity. So it's a very challenging, and young people must understand that uh, in the economic uh, position, their job opportunities, their opportunities for entrepreneurship are still restricted. And we've come a long way, but we've got a long way to go. The instruments of voting and, and also our, our, our direct action movement brought us this far. Now young people must take up the mantle. And my wife often says young people need to stop sitting around waiting for somebody to handle them, pass them a mantle, and grab their own mantle. Right. Nobody gave it to us. We had to take it. You see a definite difference in a generation now. To get people united on one front, one cause, we had the whole country geared in one direction. It's hard to get everybody together like that on one page, wouldn't you say? Yes, it is. It was hard then. It's probably more difficult now because we are halfway up the mountain. And a lot of us have gotten confused because the grass is just a little greener halfway up the mountain than it was in the valley. And we think we're on top of the mountain. That's a mistake. Uh, we've let tokenism be substituted for authentic progress and justice. You know what tokenism is? One black here, one black there, here, one black there, one black everywhere, one black. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you add a Hispanic and a woman and a homosexual and you got it made. Truth of the matter is we haven't got it made. And we still got a, we're still the last hired, first fired. We, we are still uh, uh, victims of abuse by the criminal justice system. And we're still only halfway up the ladder in terms of economic parity. More when we return. and we're pleased to hear an interview with Dr. Joseph Lowry, one of the founders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Dr. Lowry was a preacher and educator who loved to share and teach. Yes, and I asked him about being a minister, and here are a few things that he shared with me. From our perspective, SCLC, when Martin and others of us met in New Orleans in 57, it was 
almost all preachers. And there are two or three reasons for that. One is, preacher was the freest black person in the community. His accountability was to the Lord and to his congregation, and not to the Chamber of Commerce, or to Miss Charlie downtown. So he, he ought to assume leadership because he was more independent, less dependent mm -hmm. on, uh, on, on the white establishment. Secondly, the problem of human relations is basically a moral and spiritual problem. Right. See, if a man discriminates against me because I'm ignorant, that's my fault. I go to A&M, counsel high, counsel training, Tennessee State, CAU, Wuhan, learn what's going on. Even if I can't afford college, I can, I can get it through high school and I can listen and read and learn. So if a man discriminates against me because I'm ignorant, that's my fault. If a man discriminates against me because I'm dirty, that's my fault. I mean, I can afford uh, St. John dresses and Ferragama shoes, but my old uh, Buster Browns and Tom McCann can be clean. I might not can afford nylon, but my nylon can be clean. If he discriminates against me because I'm dirty, that's my fault. But if he discriminates against me because I'm loud and uncouth, that's my fault. I don't know when to whisper, I don't know when to shout. But if he discriminates against me because I'm black, he needs to take that up with God. Because God made me black. There's nothing I can or want to do about it. So it's basically a religious, spiritual, moral problem. Bible says, how can you love God whom you've not seen not and not love his fellow you see every day? I remember twice I've been challenged by non about nonviolence. Once was uh, we were out in Winn-Dixie boycotting one day, demonstrating at the store. They wouldn't hire blacks. They were selling South African black managers. They were selling South African projects, products. We were boycotting South Africa. So we were out there locking the door. And this little rough fella came up, my youngest daughter was with me. And he said, if you don't get out of the way, I'm gonna knock the hell out of you. I said, who are you talking to? He said, I'm talking to her. I said, you knock the hell out of me. Don't hit her. <laughs> he was disturbing my, my nonviolent philosophy. <laughs> and about to make, yeah, he was about to make an exceptional situation out of that. And that was, you don't mess with a peddler's children. No. So that applies to the religious area as well. If you love God, our Father, don't mess with the children. Don't deny or abuse or abridge the rights mm -hmm. of his children. So again, we're back to the fact, to the premise, I claim, that basically how you get along with your fellow man determines your attitude towards your God. It's a moral and spiritual and religious issue. Mm -hmm. so that's why that's why the church has been in the vanguard and that's why the church must continue to be so that we apply the moral imperatives of the faith to political, social, and economic problems. And that's where it's going to have to be resolved. Of course we have to have legal adjustments and have sociological ramifications and must have judicial decrees and legislation. But we're really not going to solve the problem with just the head. We've got to get the heart as well. And that's why what thus said the Lord, and love 
that agape that uh, theologians talk about, the Bible talks about, that love uh, will we'll translate into relationships. Now, in terms of you know, black community, do you see that that's biblically, the Bible says that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Do you see where that's part of the prophetic impact because of a lack of knowledge? It's all knowledge. I don't think when the Bible challenges us to, to be learned and to uh, be knowledgeable, I don't think it limited to the Bible. Because when those lines were written, there was no Bible. The Bible was compiled later by scholars and so forth. I think they were saying to people that ignorance is, is a bad thing. And some people, you know, think education is too expensive, but they ought to try ignorance. Ignorance is much more costly than education. And uh, I think that if one loves God, then one would try to utilize those gifts and expand those capabilities that God gave us. And you do that by, by knowledge. And of course, all knowledge begins with God. And then you proceed from there. The movement has always supported education. And uh, the movement uh, at its earliest, the church at its earliest beginning, most of our great institutions of learning were founded by the church. And so the learning of the informed mind and a warm heart, I think uh, the ideal citizen is one who is, uh, possesses intelligence with fire. The fire of the faith, the knowledge that gives intelligence and gives understanding. So that the understanding of that knowledge comes through witness on behalf of God. And acquiring that knowledge is a discipline that should be inspired by the gifts of the Creator. Now, you've accomplished a lot in your lifetime, won a lot of awards. Which one sticks out as one of your most treasured or feel like your most fulfilled oh, in what I, you set out to do? I bet, I'm sure you've... You mean awards and trophies? Awards, not necessarily awards, trophies, <laughs> but your fulfilling moments. Well, uh, missing awards, I, I have to mention one since you were over here from Alabama. Uh, one of the last major awards I got was a Dr. Humane Letters from the University of Alabama. Okay. Which, uh, when I... After the Selman of Montgomery March, uh, Martin named me chairman of the committee to take the demands of the march to Governor Wallace. Oh. And when we got to the steps, uh, a blue sea separated me from the governor. Those guys with those blue uniforms, Alabama State Troopers, uh, lined the <laughs> steps and wouldn't let us in. And I look at the general, the <coughs> National Guard had been appointed, you know, put in charge, and the general I thought he had cleared it. Mm -hmm. and, but the troopers blocked us. And so he yelled out some commands to the National Guard, and they came over and put their rifles up and hup, 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 and the Blue Sea parted. So I know how Moses felt when the Red Sea parted. Uh, Moses parted the Red Sea, but Joseph parted the Blue Sea, <laughs> okay. and we marched up the steps and presented the demands to Governor Wallace. Now, the, Governor Wallace wouldn't come to the door, and uh, he sent his secretary. I refused to give the secretary uh, the demands. We, we had marched 50 miles. I wasn't about to give them to a secretary, so we refused to do it. About a week later, uh, the governor, at the urging of the Methodist bishop in Alabama, Bishop Goodson, uh, did agree to meet with us and we met for about 90 minutes the 
governor tore up little pieces of paper on his desk. When I left, we had a pile that high. Then after that, in 1995, you know, he beat the marches in 65. Right. In 95, I led another march from Selma to Montgomery commemorating the 65 march, the 30th anniversary. Wallace met me at the city of St. Jude in Montgomery to apologize for what he did in 65. And uh, we sang, we shall overcome on the steps of St. Jude together. Some urged me not to let him come, but I was not about to stand in the doorway of his repentance as he stood in the doorway when uh, those two black young people wanted to enter the University of Alabama. The most cherished awards are when I meet young people on the street. I met a young man the other day who was in law school, and he said, you spoke to my class at high school here the day after I had been arrested for truancy. And he said, I didn't know you before that. He said, but I watched you since that. You inspired me that day. I'm now in law school because of you. I've never missed a day in school since. And he shook my hand. Now that is the kind of reward, an award that I really cherish. I turn in the doctorate from Alabama, University of Alabama, if I had to choose between those that I get from young people and old people who lives I've had the privilege of touching. I take their awards before I took the University of Alabama. But since I got them both, I'd like to keep it. (laughs) (laughs) You see God is giving you a gift to inspire young people. I enjoy enjoy being with young people. I I get a lot of invitations. I'm going uh, doing this birthday. I was scheduled to go to Payne College. I'm going to University of Michigan, going to college up in Ohio. Uh, during the birthday celebration. I do it all year long. I love to talk with young people. Uh, They are our hope. They are not just our future, they are our present. You guys are our present, and you and this young lady are our present and our future. So I love to to, to issue a challenge. Uh, The young people today represent the brightest generation in our history, and to whom much is given much is expected. <laughs> Required. Right. And through education, that's one of the biggest ways to... Okay, it's hard to do it without education. It gives you the credentials. It gives you the, the, the disposition. It, it shapes your attitude toward life. It, among other things, it lets you know how little you know and how much there is yet to learn and how you grow. Education is really a process of growth. And it, it, it makes you aware of the possibility of growth. And as, and as a scripture that says, Beloved, beloved, we are the sons and daughters of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be. But when we see him as he is, we shall be like him. And that educational experience is one of the ways we understand our God-likeness and the God that's within us. And it gives us the tools to help bring out the God within us and let it let God flow from our lives into the lives of others. And it can make this world a better place. So education is a jewel in the crown of life. 
And uh, I would urge young people with inquisitive, explorative, adventurous minds to read everything. Bible, of course, but read all kinds of books to, to open up and trigger avenues of thought. Any in particular? Any that you... Well, I can't. Really There's so many. Some of your favorites? So. Oh, well, I think you ought to read Martin's books. They ought to read, they certainly ought to read uh, uh, Bennett for historical perspective. They ought to read Du Bois, The Soul of Black Folks. Every black person ought to read that. And many other books. There are, there are other books that ought to be read. Uh, come to me later. You should have asked me how to. <laughs> Go ahead. Keep reading. They must keep reading. It's, it's, it's important to, to, to continue to read. Dr. Lowry would share with me, it seems like it was reminiscent to the time that we're living in right now. It's almost as if some things have never changed or it hasn't changed that much. This is so true. And now back to Dr. Lowry's story. In, in terms of working with Dr. Martin Luther King, what that must have been like in your experience. Tremendous. Martin was a once in a lifetime person. His coming to Montgomery was providential. Perfect marriage. It was made in heaven. Montgomery was perfect for the boycott, both demographically and geographically. Every black person in Montgomery <clears throat> had had a nasty experience on the bus. Or if they had some close kin had. So everybody was ready to get back at the bus. Martin was fitted by his training and his disposition his theology and his sociology, his courage <clears throat> and his faith. It was the beginning of a new era, an era of self-determination. And here, before that, we depended on what the court said, what the law said. Here is what we said. People in Montgomery said, we don't care what the law says, we aren't going to the back of the bus. And it, it freed us. It was the era of self-determination was born there. We determined to be free. We will set our agenda. We will control our destiny. And it gave us a new lease on life. Like the old lady said when the employer asked her, aren't you tired? Well, she said, my feet are, but my soul is resting. <laughs> and, and that gave us a new lease on life. And Martin was the inspiration behind it. He was eloquent in his ability to inspire and explain. He was uh, willing to suffer. He often said that he'd never live to be 40, and he died at 39. Hmm. But he never let that awareness of the danger stop him from what he had to do, what he felt God called him to do. Marvelous intellect, warm and winning spirit, a great loss. And young people would do well to, to study his life. He was fearless in the sense that his courage kept him going forward. He wouldn't turn back. But he was aware of danger. And he wanted to live. He, he often said that I'd like to live a long life, but I'm not. But you don't measure a person's worth by how long, but how well. well. Reverend Joseph Lowry, a founder of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, lived to be 98 years old. 
What a wonderful encounter, Bryant. Yes, truly, Nicole. And he was a leader during a very challenging time. Now, if you all will remember, he also gave the benediction at President Obama's first presidential inauguration. Yes, he did. History on record. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that stories like these are sometimes just a phone call away. Just pick up the phone and make that call. There's no time like the present. What What a a gift. gift. We ask you to help us work for that day when black will not be asked to get back, when brown can stick around, when yellow will be mellow, when the red man can get ahead, man, and when white will embrace what is right. Let all those who do justice and love mercy say amen. Amen. Say amen. Amen. And amen. amen.